Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Tuesday, September 24th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and we've got a packed consumer goods show show for you today. We're taking a look at how the big alcohol companies are diversifying away from alcohol. We're going to check out the state of Vail Resorts. Facebook continues to try to break into hardware. Uh, We'll dig into the opportunity in online luxury. And we even have another installment of What's the Last Stock You Bought and Why? Joining me this week, all the way from the other side of the pond in lovely Ireland. I've been there, love it. I gotta get, I gotta get back there, Rory. Head analyst on the investing yeah. team with My Wall Street. Uh, you, you may remember it as Rubicoin. They've rebranded to My Wall Street. It's Rory Karen. Rory, how's everything going? It's all going very good here, Jason. It's uh, it's the hottest day of the year, and I'm in a, a very very hot studio. So uh, <laughs> glad to be on with you. We'll forgive you if we hear the ice clinking or the water <laughs> golfing. <laughs> Well, speaking of hot and thirsty, I mean, I think that's a nice segue into our first uh, first subject, the first topic today. They're talking a little bit about alcohol companies, the big alcohol companies out there, and uh, and how they're diversifying away from alcohol. You know, I was reading on uh, my Wall Street um, on your app that you know recent uh, post that you all put up there on the the five big brands out there. We're talking about. Brands like AB and Bev and Molson Coors and Heineken, Diageo and Constellation brands, how they're diversifying away from alcohol. And you know, I, I, when I read the initial headline, I thought, well, you know, they're alcohol companies. Why are they diversifying away from alcohol? But then you dig a little bit deeper and you understand why, because it does look like, based on the numbers, that U.S. consumption for one. I mean, volumes are going down. Total volumes are going down, and beer seems to be leading the way, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, when you talk about consumers, you know, I think um, what we try to do here anyways, there's two ways to approach it. You can kind of look and think, uh, what are people going to be doing in 10 years that they're not doing now? Or conversely, and maybe maybe easier, maybe this is a bit easier, but what are they not going to be doing? Um, and we know, we know prediction is a hard game to be in, but, you know, you do start seeing long-term trends. And I think um, you can start making a couple of assumptions. So, uh, we do know that for a variety of reasons, young people aren't drinking as much as the generation before them, right. uh, who didn't drink to the generation before them. Uh, so obviously, uh, we know there's issues related to health, which I think for a long time were downplayed. I've also seen some research to suggest that social media may be playing a big part in this, um, sort of suggesting that young people didn't want to have moments when they were not of the right mind being kind of documented forever and eternity. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, but- <laughs> You know, that's understandable, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is, a, this is a trend that's forcing companies in the space to innovate. Yeah, we've seen in, the, in, in spirits, there's been a long-term trend towards premiumization. Uh, so people are drinking less but spending more money on those drinks. Uh, you know, buying cocktails with the, with the best uh, spirits or liquors. Um, they obviously work nicely for a social media post as well. Oh yeah. Uh, and so one of the one of the uh, companies we focus on here for that is Diageo, um, because they typically either occupy first or second place in any given major segment. So I think that gives them a lot of a lot of scope to launch new products. And um, Brand Foreman would be another one there that we keep an eye on. Uh, in beer, in particular. You really see like non-alcoholic beer is really leading the segment at the moment. That's uh, surprising to me. Trying, I yeah, I mean, like ten years ago, if I, non-alcoholic beers were pretty rubbish, really. Um, 
but just even in terms of marketing here in Dublin at the moment, we're seeing a, like a real gold rush in terms of the big companies trying to advertise and promote low or no alcohol alternatives. Um, Heineken in particular said earlier this year that its flagship brand had the best performance in more than a decade last year. Wow. Uh, to- totally driven by their alcohol-free, well, not totally, but uh, driven really by alcohol-free uh, alternatives. And um, Ab InBev are looking to have 25% of their sales uh, in low to no alcohol brands by 2025. So a lot of, a lot of it is moving towards non-alcoholic beer. That's fascinating to me because, you know, the one thing we've seen with smaller companies in the space, and I mean, I'll look at Boston Beer as, as you know, probably a shining example here where over the past several years, really, Boston Beer, which is known for its flagship Samuel Adams brand in the craft beer market, and we know where craft beer has gone. It's extremely saturated, competitive market. Uh, Samuel Adams itself, that core brand, has been having a lot of trouble in that market because of the flood of other craft options out there. And it does; it feels like craft beer is becoming very local. Um, and as a beer drinker, you know, I, I certainly see that here in Virginia. But to see them, Boston Beer, diversifying away from uh, their beer portfolio into other things like cider or twisted tea, or now the big thing over here is these seltzers. These hard seltzers, which are low calorie, you know, I mean, similar alcohol content to to beer, but I think maybe a just you know a little bit of a a lighter uh, option as opposed to maybe something like a heavy a heavy beer that people are kind of steering their way away from. I haven't heard a whole heck of a lot about the alcohol free uh, options uh, on that front, though. What do you think about companies like Constellation? Getting more into the the marijuana side of it now that legalization is sort of taking hold here in Canada and and it's it's finding its way here domestically as well. Um, I mean, do you feel like that is going to be an opportunity for these companies to pick up share? Do you really feel like maybe it's moving more towards the non mind altering options? Look, I think uh, there's always going to be a demand for things that are you know in some senses bad for people and. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, marijuana is not legal over here. Right. So we haven't had the opportunity to try <laughs> out any of these new offerings. Give it time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look. In in one sense, I think uh, CBD drinks, which we do have over here, right? Um, they just taste awful. Okay. <laughs> you well. know, I can't. I don't know if you've tried them, but uh, not, CBD no. doesn't taste very good, yeah. and because it's oil, it doesn't mix very well. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, I I don't know what's going to happen with the CBD style of things. Obviously, it's so early days for this for this stuff. Constellation Brands being the big mover with their stake in Canopy Growth Corporation and Samuel Adams as well have come out and said that they are looking into the space, but at the moment focusing on that hard seltzer area that you mentioned before and. Um, the seltzer thing we haven't got here either. Actually, I've never had a white claw. I believe huh. it's uh, big over there at the moment. It, trying yeah. to, hard to keep it on the shelves. <laughs> yeah. I can't say I've ever had it. I mean, I, I I am a beer drinker pretty much, and that's just kind of where I draw it. Um, I'll have the occasional spirit or wine, depending on the situation. But but I'm mostly just a beer drinker. So yeah, I've not I've not jumped into the seltzer space. But it does seem like it's proving to be a um, you know a worthy alternative out there for people looking. For something a little bit different, so I mean, I guess it's you know, it's it's all to say that these big companies are are certainly uh, looking forward and figuring out ways to make up for uh, sales they're losing 
uh, in, you know, I guess what we'd call their core competencies. But, um, you know, hey, we'll keep an eye on it. Those are some big names in the space, though, Diageo and, and Constellation, particularly. We, we know a lot about those here. Uh, let's switch over to, you know, a place where probably people are having a nice spirit after the end of a, a long day on the slopes. Vale Resorts, a uh, company we love here. I know you guys love it there as well. Um, it, I, it was a really interesting piece that you all had with My Wall Street recently because you had an expert in meteorology and atmospheric science, a gentleman by the name of Trent uh, Vonich, I believe is pronouncing it. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it sort of centered around this purchase of the Peak Resorts that, that Vail Resorts recently made. And that Peak Resorts doesn't necessarily fit into the portfolio that we become familiar with, with Vail having. But talk to us a little bit about Vail Resorts, the stuff that you like about it, and perhaps, you know, some of the concerns that you may have as well. Well, first of all, I think it's it's great to be operating in the digital space with blogs and Twitter, and um, particularly where you can write a piece of analysis with the disclaimer that you're not a climate scientist, <laughs> and one of your subscribers can then get in touch and say, "Well, actually, I am a climate scientist, and I can write a follow up for you." That's right. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if Trent would classify himself as a climate scientist, but he certainly knows an awful lot about it, and he studied it in detail. Um, but uh, we'll get back to, to that, I suppose. I think what we like about Bale to begin with, of course, is that there is another big trend that we're seeing is people favoring experiences over ownership. Oh, yeah. uh, Vail is a business that caters for that. You know, you get out of the city, you reconnect with nature, you have plenty of good opportunities for Instagram shots. Um, and they're, they're just sitting on some of the best assets in the world. You look at any list of top destinations in North America, you're going to see plenty of Vail properties on that list. Um, the adding of the 17 ski areas that we saw recently is, is was a, a kind of strange move, we thought. I mean, they were mostly in the northeast near large urban centers. Um, they paid about $264 million for those when, when the company had $200 million in debt on its books. And, and they all said they'd be taking out additional with, with some kind of investments. They're making kind of $60 million in annual EBITDA by 2021. So on the face of it, it didn't look like a terrible deal. Um, and but you know it really depends on how they're going to manage those those resorts and how they're going to turn those people into epic pass holders, which is how they are pushing forward. You know, Vale is a is a highly astute company at getting people to sign up to those season passes. They from two thousand and eight they sold seventy eight million dollars worth, and last year they sold four hundred and twelve million dollars worth. They still have. 44% of all skiers on lift tickets at the moment. So there's a large base to convert there. Yeah. And um, I also think, you know, Vale as a company are very good at embracing technology. Uh, it's key to their marketing strategy at the moment. They even have a, a an assistant uh, called Emma, which is like the Alexa of ski slopes, which tells you, you know, where the big lines are and where you can get the best food and uh, gives out deals and all that kind of stuff. So um, and finally, it's one of those resorts that, you know, they're they're using technology as well to keep those get those resorts opened earlier every single year and keeping snow on those mountains. They've they've said that they think Vail will be open one week earlier this year than last. Um, and the Keystone, one of their other slopes, will be one of the first slopes open in the U.S. three weeks earlier than last year. Wow. Well, that yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I look at Vale and it makes me think of, um, I mean, it makes me think of Disney to a degree in that you've got these parks. And I mean, for Vale, the parks are the mountains, but these are just these these big mountains that are sitting there, you know, ready to roll. And it, it is just all about pushing through as many 
people as you can. I mean, that's that's you know that gives you that operating leverage, so to speak. And whether they're buying the season pass or they buy the season pass, they go skiing and then they're staying at the lodging or buying the you know lunches or dinners or whatever the restaurants there. I mean, it is really all about traffic for these companies. So from the perspective, from that perspective, I mean the the purchase of Peak Resorts made sense. But to your point, it it certainly was a different. Um, it's a different part of the portfolio for them. I mean, they're they're majority northeast uh, places like Ohio, Pennsylvania. They're lower elevation, and, and you're you know skiing out west. Um, but I mean, it you know that people here on the east coast do like to go skiing, and it's it's not always so easy to jump out there um, to to Utah or Colorado or up to Canada to to necessarily go do that. So having options um, closer by makes sense. The you know the the piece by Trent. Really got me thinking, and it was interesting to hear his perspective on it. In that the the purchase of Peak gave him a little pause, and it really was from the the atmospheric science perspective. And I mean, I you know, I, I, we could sit here and probably debate climate change all day long. I'm sure there are people out there who just feel like it's not an issue, and some people who do. I mean, I generally think it does uh, you know, have something to it. And and I think at the end of the day, hey, listen, can't we just agree that it makes sense to treat the planet a little bit better? I mean, I, I think everybody can get on board with that. Um, and, and granted, Trent's thinking was, was very long term. I mean, I think there was a reference in the piece there to maybe 2090, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but the point yeah. was that, you know, you're seeing as the as as the earth warms up a little bit, that potentially can shorten the times that these uh, properties can stay open for for skiing during the winter, and that I guess that could be a problem down the road. Yeah, but I mean, you know yourself. How many earnings reports have you read where the company's missed and they've blamed you know an extra day or an extra weekend in the in the quarter for their bad results? When you when you think about ski resorts, you're talking about mountains being open for multiple weeks, yeah. longer or shorter, depending on the conditions. So think of the impact that that has. Um, with Trent's piece, you know, he was talking about uh, particularly focusing on those northeast regions and how they, in with climate change, would be the first and hardest hit. Yeah. So the investment was was a question for him. And um, now at the same time, you know, you it's it could be a, there could be an element of uh, Alec Baldwin's character in Glengarry Glen Ross with the leads, <laughs> you know, getting getting those names uh, into the system. Um, yeah. Because that's, you know, creating a network effect in that ski community with Vail, I think is very important, very much part of this company's long-term strategy. Yeah, well, that was a really thoughtful piece, and I appreciated reading uh, Trent's views there. He supported a lot of what he was what he was saying, and I think it would uh, it would cause anyone to sit back and and uh, think about it a little bit. So, um, so I appreciated having the opportunity there. Uh, real quick, I wanted to jump into this because you know I don't have a lot to say here, but I kind of just wanted to get your perspective on this. You know, we saw this headline out here recently that Facebook is now. Going, going even more all in on their portal bet here. They have the portal TV device that's coming out, and and then along with that news, there's news that they are in fact, you know, continuing to work on developing some type of eyewear, Facebook glasses, where uh, they'd be able to incorporate it, some type of augmented reality. Which I mean, as you know, that's right up my alley. I cover the augmented reality service here, and and Facebook is a recommendation in the service, primarily because of its Oculus device, which obviously they acquired. Um, but I, you know, it gets. Me thinking when I when I think about Portal in particular, 
I don't own a Facebook portal. I, I never will own a Facebook portal. I just it's not something I want in my life. We know that portal itself has not been you know meaningful for the company at all. So it is a little bit interesting to see that they're going you know even more uh, into this with a TV device. Do you, do you feel like I mean is, is can Facebook ever really break into the hardware space? I mean, I think the instant reaction to this is probably the same one you had, which was just just no. Um, I don't understand why anyone wouldn't buy Facebook, you know, with the com- with the company's bad history and privacy into their living rooms. Um, and they're saying that, you know, even with that checkered history on privacy, they still have billions of people using their apps and platforms. That's true. Uh, so, you know, uh, perhaps privacy is not as important as, as, as to people as we think. Uh, you know, I know all about their past discretion, indiscretions and I still use WhatsApp. Yeah. Um, I also think, I mean, looking at both the original portal and the, the, the new lineup that they announced yesterday, they look like well-designed products. Yeah, yeah, I will give them that. It does look slick. I thought as well, like, using, like, the Portal TV in particular, like, making that just an extension of your television rather than a standalone device, first of all, like, it's it's not going to take up any more space in your house. It's cheaper than a lot of alternatives. So I, I see, like, very good design there. And, you know, for, for certain people, this might be a very good product. You know, I think about... If you have um, an elderly relative that you want to keep an eye on, or if you're, you know, living abroad for a year from someone that you you feel very close to, you know, if you're in a long distance relationship or something like that, so you almost feel bad for their head of consumer software or hardware because <laughs> it it looks like he's he's really out there building quite nice products. But there's an ickiness factor about them that I think won't go away for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's a trust problem, and I'm not, I'm not sure how they overcome that. Um, it's, maybe one day they can. I mean, but to your point, I mean, it, it is. I mean, they have billions of users on their platforms, and as much as everybody wants to get out there and, and gripe about, you know, what what they've done late, lately on the privacy front, I mean, they they're. Number one, they're griping about it on one of Facebook's platforms, and and they're essentially using the platforms just as much as ever before. So I think there is sort of that difference. But people love to get out there and tell you how offended they are, but then they get back to their same old behavior. Um, and and I don't yeah. know that that necessarily changes. I mean, I think Facebook has really done a good job of of cornering the social market, and I think they're going to own that for some time to come. Um, so I certainly don't blame them for trying to figure out new ways to leverage that that user base. Um, yeah, is I there guess. A you have an Alexa. You have a, an Echo. I, yeah, I do. You know, so we have an Echo. We have a few Echoes at home, and I mean, I've I've had an Echo in the house ever since they first came out with it, and it's clever. We like it. It's got a lot of uh, merits to it. I mean, it's terrific timer in the kitchen. It's a nice stereo. Um, you know, it it does neat things, but it it is it's something we could you know if you took it out. I mean. I'd probably miss it. I mean, I do enjoy being able to ask, uh, you know, for the weather forecast or or to set a timer when I'm cooking something or to play a podcast or something like that. Um, but I did draw the line at the video uh, echo. I just said, you know what, there is a point where I just I don't want things like spying on me if <laughs> if I have the choice, right? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, like you know, I have an echo as well, and uh, whenever we talk about the smart home in here this is always something that gets kind of late uh, thrown at me because i think i'm the only one with any sort of smart home device in here um but you know i, I don't know why i trust amazon more than i trust facebook but for some reason yeah, i do i mean but I would, i'd be the same with you 
about the video, I don't think I'd feel comfortable with that. Even even with all the privacy protections they promised, or I just wouldn't like it there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's just a. It's kind of like when LinkedIn and Facebook were were out there doing their thing, and everybody, you know, all of the data told us that people wanted that separation between their personal and their professional life. And I mean, I think people probably want that separation between their social and their their purchasing or retail life as well. And maybe that's where Amazon's been able to to succeed some, and knowing that people just they they do want that separation uh, at some point, as opposed to having just all of their eggs in one basket. But I guess we shall see. It uh, will be a telling holiday season for them, I am sure. Uh, real quickly, let's get into a stock that you've been talking about with the team there recently. You know, we talked about uh, this concept of fast fashion, uh, or or you know, this mass-produced retail stuff, and this move away from fast fashion. There's a company called the Real Real that you guys have been digging into. Uh, that's playing into mm. the luxury, uh, the online luxury goods market. Tell us a little bit about Real Real and what you like about it. Well, yeah, I mean, just on the on the on the bigger trend, we have been spending a lot of time trying to find a kind of anti fast fashion play because we think that may be one of the new kind of trends we see in the consumer space. Um, obviously, fast fashion. There's an all always an ethical dilemma with buying a T-shirt for five dollars because someone <laughs> then the supply chain is is not. Is not being treated very well, yep. and then you know we're seeing serious environmental problems with it too. Um, Two hundred and thirty-five million items of unwanted clothing were dumped in UK landfills last year. That's amazing. Uh, I know, isn't it? Like the numbers are staggering. A um, hundred billion items of clothing were produced. Fifty uh, percent of fast fashion pieces are disposed within a year, and again, this is just clearly unsustainable. And social media has become a kind of, uh, you know, coming back to social media, it's kind of a theme of this conversation, but um, it has a part to play in this as well. There was a study by a charity called the Hubbub Foundation that found that one in six young people will not wear an outfit again once it's appeared on social media. Huh. Um, I mean, think of that for a minute. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, we've been looking for a while to try and find uh, some investment vehicles to, for, for the kind of the movement away from fast fashion. Uh, one side of things is definitely a kind of this clothing rental thing, which uh, when I first heard of, I, I was I pushed back on quite heavily. But the more I've read about it, the more I, I'm seeing people adopt to it. There's a company, a U.S. company called Rent Runway, which yep. has been operating for 10 years now. Uh, they're valued at a billion dollars at the moment and they just opened up a, a new uh, headquarters on the, on the west coast of Ireland. Um, but another one we were looking at is this like growing second-hand market. And there's lots of companies in the space. It's very, very crowded. Uh, Thread of Poshmark are two big ones. Um, but one that recently went public is called The Real Real. Um, and it is, it's been having a bit of a difficult time of it, as most recently IPO companies are. And I think, uh, I think part of that might be due to the fact that the founder is a woman called Julie Wainwright, who was once CEO of Pets.com, uh, uh, which you'll remember, yeah. Talk about, <laughs> shedding, talk about shedding a <laughs> reputation. <laughs> the poster child of the dot-com bubble. Um, but of course, that was a long time ago. Uh, Wainwright appears to have hit a winner this time. You know, she's now the founder of a $1.5 billion uh, recently IPO'd business. They've got sales of $200 million last year, growing really quickly. And they, they focused really on the luxury brands with a team of human authenticators that all items that are advertised are to make sure that they're exactly as advertised. Um, and luxury brands tend to hold their value for many years, with some even appreciating. Uh, so in a sense, the real real is, is really the opposite of fast fashion. 
uh, the people who use the service now love it with um, 82% of their last year's GMV coming from repeat buyers. So it's, it's as I said, it's very recently IPO companies, too early to call, but it's, it's one we're keeping a close eye on. All right, very good. Yeah, Lost sounds uh, a little bit like another company I think recently IPO'd here called Farfetch. Um, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. I do like that. I like the concept there. And, and I mean, you know, you do see where I mean, folks will buy uh, expensive luxury good, and then you know, years down the road, they don't want it anymore. Those things hold their resale value certainly a lot, uh, a lot more so than than anything in fast fashion. Um, so it does seem like a market that could sustain itself. Uh, I guess we'll just have to see how the economics all shake out for it. Uh, okay, Rory. Last a uh, couple a couple weeks back, we introduced a concept uh, or a segment here called "The Last Stock You Bought and Why." Uh, it's turned out that people enjoy it because we're getting um, some new tickers and some ideas as to why people are buying uh, or adding you know stocks to their portfolio. So, wanted to jump in here and ask you real quick uh, if you're willing to play along. What is the last stock you bought and why? Uh, yeah, the last stock I bought was a company called Twilio. I mm-hmm. don't know would your uh, listeners be w- aware of what they do. Yep, so I think I all of our listeners are very familiar with it, and, and uh, it's a company that's got a lot of traction here in our foolish universe. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think Twilio is one of those those companies that's just leading the way in helping brands communicate with their customers. And um, you know, it's uh, when I try to explain it to people, I, I always say, you know, you may have never heard of it, but I guarantee you've used it probably like <laughs> ten times a day. You know, you've been you've been in that ecosystem. Yep. Um, I just love that business. I think you know, on a number side, they just keep increasing their active users. I think it's a, like fourfold in the last uh, few years. Uh, revenues up thirteen fold since two thousand and thirteen. And what I really think they're doing is they're serving this kind of uh, Uberized generation of people who want things, you know, they want things immediately. So they want, they're becoming far less patient. They want to know that it's not good enough to know what, that your order will be there in 30 minutes. You need to see the exact location of the driver. Um, and secondly, there's that need for security. So, you know, so many of the things we do now are carried out in the digital realm and things like two, two-factor authentication is, is, is very important. It's very standard use of Twilio's platform. And so I think they're they're in a really good space, market leader, and I, I really like the CEO. All right, people, Twilio, get it on your radar if you haven't bought it yet, because um, Rory's telling you a good uh, good uh, good story there. I like what I'm hearing. Uh, and hey, you know, what's the last stock you bought and why? Let us know by e- emailing us at industryfocus at fool dot com or hit us up on Twitter at mf industry focus. Tell us what the last stock you bought was and why you bought it. Maybe we'll uh, you know, even read it on air if you're lucky. Uh, one more thing. If you're on the Instagram, uh, keep an eye out on our Motley Fool Instagram profile because an awesome contest is coming up starting Wednesday, September 25th. And yes, that's tomorrow, people. So keep your eyes peeled on the Motley Fool's Instagram feed. Neat contest coming up. Rory Karen, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this week. Thank you for having me. All right. And to learn more about My Wall Street, check them out at mywallstreet.com. It's actually mywallstmywallst.com. And for more of Rory's insights on the market and how beautiful it is over there in Ireland, and I don't know, maybe I'll get a golf picture from him one day or something, you can follow him at tw- on Twitter at Rory Karen. That's R O R Y C A R R O N. Rory Karen on Twitter. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Rory Karen, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.